It's a um, privilege to be here with you and to be able to spend um, two services here with you today. Um, especially a warm welcome if you're a visitor. I'm a visitor here too. Uh, so at least uh, we've got one thing in common even before we start. Um, also just a few words of explanation because I know those of you who come here regularly are going through the creed and I'm going to be speaking about that but we're going to start off rather more tangentially and then come back towards that in the end. And then just to really confuse things, we're going to take two totally different approaches uh, between this morning and this evening. Um, so don't worry if you're in a small group with someone because um, uh, you regularly come here and you seem to be talking about two totally different things. That's because depending on whether you're here in the morning or the evening, you would have heard two totally different things. Uh, my sermons aren't even worth preaching twice, let alone listening to twice. Um, so uh, taking two different approaches just helps you know, at least minimize the pain for me, if not for you. Um, I, um, uh, I would like, if I can, um, just to start by reading something uh, to you. Um, it's an editorial from a newspaper, and when I read it a couple of years ago, um, or, or last year rather, I read it and I just thought, you know, there's something in this that um, just speaks very, very profoundly to the time that we're in right now. And um, we will be looking, I say, we'll be ending looking at a little bit about these words that Jesus Christ, you know, was crucified, died, you know, and suffered under Pontius Pilate and so on. But I'd really like to connect this with really where we are now. Because as I read this editorial, I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that there are some very big questions that we simply struggle to answer in this day and age. Um, let me also apologize to those who are listening through the sign language. Um, if your sign, signer suddenly keels over and dies, um, that's because it's possible that I'm the fastest technical preacher you'll ever hear. Um, and so, but the good news is we believe in the resurrection. And so um, you will see her again sometime. Um, just may not be tomorrow. Um, so thank you. Uh, but thank you for signing. I appreciate it. Let me read to you from this editorial. I say this was in a major UK newspaper last year. He says, what we're witnessing right now throughout the West is a new politics of anger. There is anger at the spread of unemployment, leaving whole regions and generations bereft of hope. There is anger at the financiers who brought the global economy to the brink of disaster and yet continue to reward themselves as if nothing has happened. There is anger at CEOs using public corporations for private benefit. There is anger that while a few have benefited disproportionately from the global economy, most people have seen their standards of living stay static or decline. There is widespread feeling that the world in the 20th century is running out of control. And this has led to a resurgence of dangerous forces. The far right, seeking a return to a golden age that never was. The far left, now in pursuit of a utopia that will never be. They are both enemies of freedom. W.B. Yeats's vision has come to pass. The center no longer holds. Things fall apart and anarchy is loosed upon the way. But there is something deeper behind the dysfunctional politics of the contemporary West. For the past half a century... We have been living through one of the great unstated social experiments of our time. Because we have tried to construct a world without identity and without morality. Instead, we've left it to two systems to deal with these problems of our collective life, the market economy and the liberal democratic state. Morality has been outsourced to the market. We have, the market gives us choices, and morality has been reduced to a set of choices in which Right and wrong have no meaning beyond the satisfaction or frustration of our own desires. 
we find it increasingly hard to understand why there might be things that we want to do, we can afford to do, but we should not do, because they are dishonorable or disloyal or demeaning or, in a word, unethical. Too many people in positions of public trust have come to the conclusion that if you can get away with it, you'll be a fool not to. And that is how the elites betray the public they were supposed to serve. And when that happens, trust collapses and the civilization begins to decay and die. Meanwhile, the liberal democratic state has abolished national identity in favor of multiculturalism. The effect is to turn society from a home into a hotel. In a hotel, you pay the price, you get a room, and you're free to do whatever you like, so long as you do not disturb the other guests. But a hotel is not a home. It doesn't generate identity or a sense of belonging. I don't know how that strikes you, but say the first time I read that, I thought that says so much so well and raises a whole series of actually very profound and very interesting questions because it raises questions about identity, how we define who we are, and morality, how we actually go about living. Now, when we talk about God, what we begin to realize is actually these two questions within God are married to each other. You can't separate them. Now, that's why you sometimes, you get asked a question, and it goes something like this. I don't know if you've ever heard this or thought about it. Someone will say, does God do something because it's good? Or is something good because God does it? Now, the reason we sometimes ask that question is, it's, it's very, very clever. It's saying, okay, look, you've got God. When God does something, is it because there's a moral law that tells him what he should and shouldn't do. In which case, there's something higher than your God. There's something greater than your God. God is subject to that. Or is God basically, he can do whatever he wants, and whatever God does, that's what's good. But that seems to make morality arbitrary. Whatever God does is good, and so you can never question him, and so it doesn't, you know, it it basically makes morality meaningless. And it's a very... Difficult question and the kind that philosophers like to argue about and beat each other up about. Of course, within the Christian faith, the understanding down through two millennia has always been the same. That the moral law describes God's character. It describes who he is. He is light. He is good. He is life. That is who he is. So it's not the fact that there's a moral law that exists outside of God which judges him. Or that there's nothing there at all and he's just totally arbitrary and whatever he does happens to be good. It's saying, no, this morality describes his character. So there is no, that is why in the Christian faith we say there is no darkness in him. Whereas in other faiths we sometimes think, well, there's you know, light and then a little spot of darkness. Does that make sense? Because nothing's purely good. There must still be the presence of evil. And the answer to that is, is no. He is completely good. That is who he is. It describes his character. It describes who he is. So that is why when you read in the Bible things like in John chapter 1, you'll see phrases like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in another um, book within um, the Bible, you also find... um, First John, in chapter 1, you'll read words like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Life appeared. 
We have seen it and testify. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. And what you see in these passages is that one of those first points, in him is light, in him is life. That is who God is. Now, why is this very important? Well, it's important because the Bible also has something utterly unique to say about us as people, that we were created in his image. In no other ancient system of thought or even modern system of thought do you have anything approximating even the idea that people were created in the image of God. So in most other religious systems, you can happily reduce people to the status of animals, and you have no problem in terms of their thinking. But we, however, are like God. We're created in his image. And that also means that you see within us a strong connection between identity and morality. It's woven right into the very core of our being. Which means that when we as people do something which is wrong, when we as people do that which is described as sin, we're not just doing something against God, we're also sinning against our own greatest welfare. We pay the price within ourselves for that which we actually do wrong. We literally reap what we sow. Because these things are wedded together in our life. You can't simply act in any way you want and expect it to have no impact on your person. This is one of the whys, and I just give this as a passing illustration. I don't have enough time to go into the detail of it now. But this is why, for example, if you struggle with a pornography addiction and you're reducing other people into an object to be consumed for your pleasure, you will also find it diminishes you. It makes you less than what you are. Which is why if you look at some of the forums and even some of the secular struggles with the impact of pornography on society, the problem is we start to use other people for our own pleasure. And at the same time, within ourselves, we become incapable of forming true relationships. We can't actually connect with people in terms of relationship. We find a diminished capacity to do it. And we feel increasingly lonely. So we step up our consumption of the very thing which is diminishing us to stop us forming the kinds of relationships we need to feel fulfilled in the first place. It literally has an impact on us and in us and diminishes us. Now why is this all also so important? Well, all of us need a sense of identity and all of us need a sense of morality. This part of the most basic questions we ask. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? This question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose, and which implies within it moral thinking. And where am I going? Where does this ultimately take me? What is the destiny that this is actually leading me to? And now we begin then to see that therefore we have this huge hunger, this huge need to create for ourselves, identity. And if we can't inherit a form of morality, again, to invent it for ourselves. You know, I, I grew most of my childhood growing up in the Middle East. So I grew up um, as a child, first of all, in Saudi Arabia. And then, um, well, first of all, actually, in, in the United Arab Emirates in, in, in Sharjah. And those are my earliest childhood memories. Um, we lived very close to a town called Dubai. I lived there in the, in the early 1970s. Um, there was one hotel in Dubai in the 1970s. I don't know if any of you have seen pictures of Dubai, but there's certainly more than one hotel there now. Um, and then um, in the early 80s, we moved to Saudi Arabia, and you know, I spent my early teenage years in Riyadh. And so that's where, I was that's where I was just educated and grew up. That was the culture I was in. 
And in the, when you're in that kind of setting, you're very aware of how we try to answer these questions about morality and identity. We assume that we inherit it. So you inherit your identity either from geography, the land, and if you ever struggle about Middle Eastern politics and how that all works, so much of it is defined by the land, literally by geography. Or you want a sense of identity from history. In terms of, you know, it's all about your descendancy and who your father was and your grandfather was and your great, 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 you know, and you keep going back and back and back and back, and that helps define who you are. May, or maybe it's simply wedded into a sense of immediate family, you know, just in terms of, you know, your immediate upbringing. And in the West, we've become very popular, this has become a very popular idea, mainly because you can blame whatever problems that you have right now on your parents. Um, and so everything becomes your parents' fault, which seems like a great idea until you become a parent. Um, although it becomes strangely attractive again when you become a grandparent, because now you can, you can blame what's happening to your grandkids on your own kids. And so you get your revenge back. But either way, we, we're looking to define things in a certain way, or, or maybe just more broadly in terms of culture. This is my, this is my culture. This is my cultural background. That's, this is what shapes who I am and how I think. And You have to understand my culture. And we're all trying to therefore either inherit identity or construct identity. Now, when you try to construct your own identity and morality, you, it's because you don't feel you can inherit it from your immediate environs. Because I moved over to the Middle East very young, I am what sometimes is referred to by sociologists as a third culture kid. Okay, I'm growing up in a culture that I haven't immediately inherited and all those kinds of things. You know, I moved there when I was just very, very young, and that's just what I grew up in. So it's home, but it, it's not home at the same time. And so now you have a different type of struggle which is going on. Which is why when my parents finally moved to a country called Cyprus, and now all of a sudden all the restrictions that I was brought up in in Saudi Arabia, because in Saudi there's a lot of things you can't do. Well, you can do them, it's just that you'll die as a result of doing them. Um, so, um, you know, there were all these things that I couldn't do. Now there are all these things that I could do. And I'm now wanting to become the person I've always wanted to be. I'm trying, who am I? I want to become this person. And so that's exactly what I started to do. I began to live my life to become the person I felt I needed to be, to carve out a way of life to live in a particular way. And so as I grew up, I, I, I used to watch a huge number of films. I watched all kinds of crazy films. Both Cyprus and Saudi had very liberal interpretations of the copyright laws, namely... They're not for us. It's a different culture. We have a different practice here. I would see videos, uh, films on video cassette. if some of you here are old enough to know what those are. The rest of you ask someone with grey hair afterwards what a video cassette is. Um, we used to get films on video cassette before they had their, their, their premiere in the United Kingdom. Um, and so I used to watch just huge numbers. Everything that came out, I saw. And I wanted to be like what I saw on the screen. That's who I wanted to be. So I copied everything that I saw on the screen. So every hero of mine, I wanted to be like them. Uh, one of uh, my heroes, one of, my, one of the biggest heroes, had a huge impact on my, my uh, thinking and my life, even though, um, amazingly, he's never won an Oscar despite his great body of work, or indeed, just quite simply, his great body, was a man by the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger. You may be <laughs> familiar with his rare acting talent. Um, and um, one of his uh, earlier movies starts with him walking up a mountain carrying a tree on his shoulder while smoking a cigar. And I wanted to be like him, but I, I'm not built to carry trees. So how can I be like him? Well, cigar smoking is the answer. So I used to smoke these big cigars because that's what he did. I wanted to be like him. Another one of my heroes was, was um, James Bond. You know, I, I read all of the James Bond novels way before I saw all the films. and I just, just, I just read all of them. And if you've read the novels... 
Um, James Bond, there are two things that mark him out amongst other things in terms of what he has. One is a supercharged Bentley. That was out of my price range as a 17-year-old. Uh, and the second one was a silver cigarette case. So I had a silver cigarette case uh, with my initials engraved in the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, I, I used to smoke filterless French cigarettes called Gitin because you can remove a filterless cigarette from a case and you can flick it in the air. And as it spins, it doesn't matter what end you catch, you don't have to ever take it out and put it the other way in, which isn't cool. Um, that, that's what I, that's what I, I wanted, you see, because more than anything else, the reason I was selecting my heroes was I was thinking, what, what do I want to define me? And the answer was, well, I, I want to be cool. That's the single most important thing. That's the be-all and end-all, is, is to be respected and loved because you're so cool. Uh, as you can see, I may not have exactly arrived at that <laughs> destination, but, yeah. but, but you have to give me 10 out of 10 for effort. I mean, I was, I was trying hard. Uh, I... Um, I, you know, with a box of matches, you, you, you strike a match against that thing, down, that strip down the side. Well, I used to remove that from a box of matches, that little strip, that lighting strip, and stick it to the bottom of one of my shoes. <laughs> so having flicked a cigarette into my mouth, I could lean against a wall and put my foot up and strike a match on my boot to light it, like I'd seen happen in the Westerns. And indeed, that, that entire routine was inspired within me by a guy called Clint Eastwood. And when I was growing up, as far as I was concerned, he was the coolest of them all. I mean, there was nobody cooler than him. Uh, he was being interviewed once, and the interviewer said to him, Mr. Eastwood, why do people think you're so cool? And he took a little cigarello out of his pocket, and he put it on the edge of a table, so the, edge was hanging, the end of it was hanging over, and he, he flicked it like this, so it started spinning in the air. And while it was spinning in the air, he produced a match from his back pocket, caught the cigarello, lit the match under the table, inhaled very deeply having lit the cigar, blew one big smoke ring, three little smoke rings through the big smoke ring and said, I don't know. <laughs> I, and I wanted to be like that. So that that's, why, that's why I did that. I wanted to be like him. He was the one I aspired to, aspired to emulate. And all of us, to that extent, are trying to become something which we want to be, which tells us also something very interesting. We're not actually happy with ourselves in the first place. The very fact that most of us feel we need to become something else, that we need to change who we are, means that at some level, in some sense, every single person in every culture of this world feels something's not quite right. I need to construct, build, inherit, protect some kind of, protect this. Otherwise, if I lose it, maybe I lose everything. And this is now where the Bible has something very unusual to say, and Jesus Christ has something totally unique to say that you just don't find anywhere else. It's completely unusual. If you take any ancient system of thought, you'll see it gets reduced into one of three ways. It's either reduced into an ideology as a set of ideas to be mastered, or it is ultimately reduced into a type of experience, a feeling that you have, or it's reduced into a set of practices, various things which you do. And every major religious and non-religious system in the world, historic and today, is grounded in one of those three. It's either a system of thought to be mastered, or it's a type of experience that you need to have, or it's a pattern of behavior that you need to do. And different cultures at different times latched on to these different things. So for the ancient Greeks, ideas were, were ultimate. If you could master ideas, and philosophical ideas in particular, you would have the keys to unlock the mysteries to life, the universe, and everything else. Uh, systems which were much more mystical in their rooting basically have this idea that you need to engage through your feelings, you sort of reach out and have an experience that's so profound it will ultimately define everything else. And when you've had this all-defining experience, you'll figure out why you're here, who you are, where you're going. It will answer all questions for you. Uh, other systems which are rooted very pragmatically in doing are saying, look, just live this way. Put these principles into effect. 
that will enable you to become who you ultimately want to be. And so they look and they want to come and change the way we think or the way we feel or what we actually do. Now the interesting thing is you can't reduce the Christian faith into one of those or even a combination of those three things. You can't reduce the Christian faith into an ideology to be mastered even though there's nothing more profound than meeting Jesus Christ. You can't reduce the Christian faith into a feeling to be experienced even though there's nothing more thrilling than coming into relationship with it. You you can't reduce the Christian faith into a set of do's and don'ts, even though Jesus Christ himself said we should be known by how we live. You can't reduce it. And this is because Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, didn't come to give us new thoughts about God or a new experience with God or even to tell us to do new things for God. Jesus Christ came into this world as God. That's who he claimed to be. That's who he said he was is. Now, if you want to look at this on your own after this, I would very much encourage you to try reading through the Gospel of John if you've never done it before. Because you'll see in the Gospel of John all the way from the beginning to the end, and I've just read to you the first few verses right at the very, very beginning, you'll see this theme developed all the way through the Gospel. And if you're a non-Christian and you just happen to be visiting here this morning, I'd really encourage you, find, um, join one of the Alpha courses which is set up here. The Alpha courses. Uh, it's something which now millions of people have done in the United Kingdom as a way to help them think through the Christian faith. And one of the first questions you'll come across is, who is Jesus? Who is he? How do we answer the question of identity for him? So it's very, very interesting. When the disciples at one point, one of them in John chapter 14, says to Jesus, show us the Father, show us God, and that will be enough for us. Jesus looks at him and says, have you been with me all of this time and you still don't know who I am? If you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen God. You've seen the Father. Do you not know that the Father and I are one? That's incredible. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you actually know who he is? Jesus Christ did not come to give us a, a, just as I say, a system of thought to be mastered or a way of life to be lived or anything like that. That's why you can't move Jesus from, from Christianity. In any other religious system, you can remove the founder from the system and the system remains. So, for example, um, if you're talking with a Buddhist and you say, did it have to be the Buddha who gave us Buddhism or could it have been anyone else? They'll be very insistent it was the Buddha. But if you push it and you say, yes, but theoretically, well, the answer theoretically is anyone who got enlightenment, whoever got there first, would have been able to give us the system. And so you don't need the historical figure of Buddha. You can remove Buddha from Buddhism. Buddhism survives as a system. You can remove the founder from the system. The system remains. It's about the teaching and the experience and the way of life. Now, you can have the same kind of conversation with an Islam, although you'll find it even more challenging. But if you push it to its maximum theoretical limits and you say, yes, but look, did God have to choose Muhammad, or could God theoretically have chosen anyone? Well, theoretically, the answer will be, well, anyone, but he absolutely, that's the one he chose. But the thing is, it it didn't have to be them. It could have been anyone. But you can't remove Christ from Christian. It's impossible. If you remove Christ from Christian, all you're left with are the letters I-A-N, and Ian cannot save you. (laughs) Jesus Christ comes into this world And he basically says, look, you're reading this and you diligently study it. This is about me, he says. Everything you read in here is about me. Which is why in the creeds you have this historical statement that Jesus Christ was born by the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and died. His 
Life, his real historical existence and life is essential. He had to live. He had to be born. He had to physically die. He had to be raised again to new life. He had to. It's not optional. It's essential because this system is about him. It's about who he is. It's not about just the thought he offers or the experience he grants or the way of life he asks you to live. It is first and foremost defined in terms of do you know who he is and have you met him? Have you accepted him? Are you in relationship with him? It's first and foremost about him. So you can't remove him from the system and say, well, we can get rid of Jesus and here's everything else. You can't do that, which is why in the early creeds such importance is laid. If you go and talk to a Hindu and you ask them, did these various figures historically exist? It's not a question that they particularly trouble with. And as a matter of fact, one, um, uh, a guy who I only got to meet several, briefly several times, sadly, by the name of Leslie Newbegin, when he was a, a bishop in India, said Hindus were constantly amazed when they talked to him as a Christian, that the fact that Jesus Christ had to physically live, physically die, there was a physical resurrection. If you could disprove the history, the whole thing collapsed. They were amazed at it because the history wasn't important to them for, theirs, for what they believed. But for the Christian, the history is central, which is why you can look into the Christian faith and ask, is it real? I mean, did it actually happen? Is it true? What is the historical basis? And it, those are some of the kinds of questions that Alpha tries to answer. Why do we actually believe this is real? Why do we believe this is historical? Why is that so essential? And the answer is because it's about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the amazing thing is it's not just about who he is. It's also about who we are. If we're created in his image, if Jesus Christ is the word through whom all things came to be, and that's the, if you, if you look at um, the Gospel of John in its beginning, it says, you know, through him all things were made, through him nothing was made that has been made, all things that were made came to be through him. Literally, it, if you read it in its original language, it says everything that came to exist came to exist through him. And it draws a distinction, therefore, between what always existed, that which never had to be created, God, and everything else that came to be, things that didn't exist but now do. And you have these two, and God, who was always there, has now created things that didn't used to be there but now are, namely you and I. And everything we see around us falls into that category. And he now, he made us. But the problem is, to come back to a little bit where we started earlier, when we do that which is wrong in our life, when we sin, it's not just the fact that we offend God and call off a relationship with him, although that's primary and very important, it also affects us. It makes us less than we were created to be. It makes us less than we were meant to be. That's the effect of sin on us. So then what is the fundamental challenge for every human being? And the fundamental challenge for every human being is we are less than we were ever intended to be. Which is why we work so hard on self-improvement, self-help, self-work, 10 steps to this, 12 steps to that, one step to this, and so on. We're trying to get to the place, back to a place where we first were, but there is no path back. We can't reverse time. But what Jesus does is God now comes to us in human form in the person of Jesus Christ, not to make it possible to go back in time, but to make a way forward through his cross. When Jesus Christ is crucified under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ takes on into his being everything that's gone wrong in ours. And these are some of the most profound statements in the Bible. That's why you'll see statements in the Bible that say things like, 
When Jesus went to the cross, he became sin for us. He became a curse for us. Literally, Jesus Christ took on into his being everything that's gone wrong in yours. All the wrong thoughts, all the harmful experiences, all the bad things you have done, and all of the consequence that is entailed in those things, all of it, he takes on into himself. He literally becomes sin for us. He takes on into his being, and now the God who is perfect and in whom there is no darkness at all takes on literally the sin of the world into himself and cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this history is literally ripped. And through his physical death, through his taking on the consequence and the reality of all of our sin, all the things that we have done wrong, into himself, and he is buried, he doesn't just take it on and pay the price for it. Through his resurrection, he conquers victorious over it, and he comes and finds each one of us, and he offers us a new life in him. He comes to each one of us and says, all the stuff you've done wrong that's destroyed you, diminished you, reduced you, I'm offering you a new life. I'm offering you a new creation. The Bible talks about it as being born again or having new life or having a new creation. Or It uses all kinds of language to try to talk about the same thing. This is what you were, but this is who you can be. You can now have a new type of existence in him. Do you know that? Have you had that in your life? That's what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian isn't just saying, okay, I'm going to think this or I'm going to do that, or I'm going to try and feel that. You can exhaust yourself trying to think things and feel things and do things. You'll be utterly exhausted by the end of it. It could destroy you. It may even put you down into a breakdown, which is why external forms of religion that just simply have control of your outward appearance can actually lead to breakdown and can feel very oppressive at times. There's a difference between that outward pressure to make you conform and now an inner change of your very heart and who you are that changes everything else. And that's what God offers to do in Christ. And that's why this historical event of God coming into this world and becoming a human, what we call incarnation, and then the fact that he suffered, died, was buried, and rose again and will come back is central. It's the earliest Christian creed. The earliest Christian creed that we have ever recorded anywhere, we find in 1 Corinthians. And it's very, very simple. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That is the earliest form of Christian belief. The earliest Christian belief in its most primitive form that we think that many scholars around the world now say was preached right from the year dot. There's one very liberal scholar who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is God, but actually says within 48 hours, and I don't know how he comes to the figure of 48 hours, he says, but within 48 hours of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, the gospel, the good news, the message of the Christian faith the apostles preached was that Jesus Christ was Lord, he is God, he died, for your sins. He was raised to new life. And one day he'll come back to judge us all to see who accepted this new life in him. That's the earliest, irreducible form of the creed. Which is why Jesus Christ as this historical figure is so absolutely central. And it changes everything else. It changes everything. There's a, um, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen Michelangelo's statue of David. Um, it's a beautiful statue. If you've ever been to Italy, it's, it is remarkable to see. Well, the first time I went to go and see uh, David, um, I was expecting to be a bit disappointed because you know when something's been very much bigged up in your mind and your head and you, know, you don't need to know much about antiquity and statues in particular to know that David, the f- King David, the statue of King David who, whose life we read about in here made by Michelangelo is considered by many to be one of the far finest 
expressions of its, of its type. You know, and so I, I thought that I, I went there thinking, I think I'm going to be a bit disappointed. It's so big in my head when I see it, I, it's going to be a little disappointing. Well, I have to say it didn't disappoint at all. The, it, it is absolutely incredible, but here's the amazing thing about it. Up for the first few hundred years of its life, that statue lived outside. But then it had to be moved inside. The reason it had to be moved inside, and then indeed they built a whole museum just more or less to house that statue. The reason it had to be moved inside is the marble is of incredibly poor quality. I mean, really bad quality. Before Michelangelo ever got his hands on that piece of marble, this massive piece of marble, because the statue is huge. I mean, the statue is just enormous. And, and if you're a guy and you're going to go and see it, you're going to just have to deal with the fact that it's going to make you feel much less than, than you are. Um, the, the, so this huge piece of marble was outside in a, in a quarry. And two other sculptors came along, and they bought this massive piece of marble very cheaply. And what they did is they built a huge tunnel all the way through the base of this massive block. I mean, they, all the way through the middle, they cored from one end to the other end, because they thought maybe there's a nice bit of marble hidden in there somewhere. Does that make sense? You know, maybe there's like bad marble, good marble, and then bad marble, and if we tunnel through it, we'll find the good marble, and if we find good marble, then we'll chip all the bad marble off, and we'll make something out of the little bit that remains. And they cored all the way through it, and they found nothing of any quality whatsoever, so they literally threw it out. And there it just stood, unused and neglected, for years. Just, it's not even good enough quality to even do anything with. And then Michelangelo came along. Michelangelo could see something that no one else could see, and that's one of the reasons why David stands the way he does, is the one thing Michelangelo couldn't do, that makes sense, was fill in the hole. So he had to work around the hole that was made by these other two guys. And he carved out of this low-grade piece of marble one of the most beautifully and highly regarded statues of its, of its genre. It's absolutely well worth seeing. And in many ways, that's exactly what the gospel does. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does when you say yes to him. When you say yes to Christ, he comes and takes whatever is there. Stuff that if people were to know everything about your life would say, you know what? It's such poor quality. It's so messed up. It's so flawed. It's not even worth trying, which is why some of us give up. Sometimes even sadly Christians, we feel like just like giving up. There just seems to be just too many issues, too many problems. So we just give up. And God, far more than Michael and Angelo, is not just able to carve something beautiful out of what is there. He's also able to change the substance of what is there as well and begin to make it something which is far more beautiful. Because in God's eyes, there's no life that doesn't have value. All life has value because we were made in his image. But when we experience sin and when we do sin, we're literally also diminishing and destroying ourselves amongst everything else we're doing. And Jesus comes and changes everything and makes it completely new. As we draw our time to a close, I'm, I'm going to offer three possible responses to, to what I've said today, um, no matter where, where you are. Um, the, and there are only three responses, and there only have been three responses to, this, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message of who he is. Uh, number one is, no, I think you're wrong. What you're saying is wrong, your understanding is wrong, I, I just don't believe it. It's wrong. And, and maybe you feel about that very strongly. 
Maybe it actually bothers you that Christians think it's right and are trying to make other people Christians. You think that's wrong as well. And so you have a moral issue with Christians who think that they should tell other people about who Jesus is and make them Christians too. You think that's wrong. Well, if that's you, if you're such a strongly convinced atheist or agnostic that not only do you think that this isn't right but is actually wrong, then you only have one response if you're saying no today. If you're saying no, you absolutely have to. You have no option. You are morally compelled as an atheist to come and do the Alpha course. Let me explain why. If that's what you believe, if that's what you believe, you believe that Christians definitely shouldn't be going out telling other people about Jesus and making even more Christians. That's wrong. And you heard it. Even in this group of churches here, now they want to go and set up another church in another country. And you think that's wrong. Well, here's the thing. If you come to the Alpha course, you're going to consume their resources. They have to employ staff. They have to provide refreshments. They pay for all of that. You don't. So if you come to the Alpha course, you are consuming and absorbing resources which would otherwise be sent to convert some other poor fellow somewhere else. So it's time for you just to big up and take a hit for the team. Don't allow them to send those resources to convert someone else. You absorb the impact of that and you take it on to stop it going somewhere else. So if you are here and you fall into that career, I would absolutely encourage you, come along, do Alpha. The second response is possibly, look, I'm not sure. Maybe there's something in what you're saying, but I'm not sure. And, and, and I don't know. Well, why not take the time to find out? There are a lot of friendly people here. They're happy to buy you coffee. And again, it's one of the reasons why Churches like this put on things like the Alpha Course. It's an opportunity to come out where you can sit in a group with atheists and agnostics and people who believe different things and look at this together and think about it together and figure out, well, is it right? Is it true? So why not just give that a go? You've got nothing to lose. But maybe you're sat here and right now as you're listening to this, you're thinking, yes. I actually understand what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. And you're listening to this, and it's almost like somehow God himself has reached out his hand into your heart and into your life and just rested his hand on your life and is saying to you, well, look, I'm interested in you. I love you. I created you. I know exactly who you're meant to be, and the only way you're going to get there is by saying yes to me. And that's what becoming a Christian is, ultimately, it's saying yes to Christ. It means thinking, God, I can't believe that Jesus Christ has come into this world, God in human form, for me. That's amazing. And I can't believe that even though me, who I am, is so messed up, and I've so messed up, so many bad things done to me, so many bad things I've done, that I'm so messed up in here, that you actually are interested in me. But that's amazing too, that you are. And I can't believe it's amazing that you went to the cross and you took on into your being everything that's gone wrong in mine. And I need that divine transaction. I need this for me. Well, if that's where you are, I'm going to just pray a very, very simple prayer. Um, and I'll invite you to join me. Um, I'll invite all of you just to take a moment, however you may be responding this morning. Um, my suggestion would be just to close your eyes. There's nothing magical in that. That's just so you're not distracted by anyone else. And it also gives you some privacy so other people can't spy on what you're doing. And if you know, as you sit here, you need to say yes to him. You've completely fallen out of his hands and you need to put yourself back in them. 
or you were never there in the first place and you're finally figuring out what a Christian actually is. Not someone who has an ideology or a lifestyle or has certain types of feelings, but someone who has this new life in Christ and you need to say yes, then I'd just love to pray with you. So I'd invite you, if that is you, with, as we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, just to maybe hold up your hands as you would do almost if you were to take a gift from someone because this really is a gift. It's something that God gives us. Um, again, nothing magical in that. It's just, I guess, a way of embodying the reality of what we're talking about a little bit. And just pray this with me. Dear Father, I want to thank you that as the author and creator of the universe, the one who made everything, I want to thank you that you came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to thank you even more that you came for me. God, I find it hard to understand why you would give yourself to rescue me out of the situation I'm in, but I want to say thank you. Lord, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done Lord, I've added to all of the sin and the mess in this world. And Lord, I'm sorry for what has made me. But Lord, I want to receive this new life from you, this new creation, this new heart. And Lord, help me to live for you. Lord, put me in a context of a real family. Lord, a real part of your church where I can talk about my struggles and my successes, where I can weep, where I can cry, that I may grow, Lord, to be like you and to be more like you. And I pray all of this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.